Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Read with your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. Good morning and welcome to Read. I'm Michelle Martin. Is your business built to scale or built to fail? How do you translate an idea for widespread effect? We're going to find out with today's featured book, a book that tells us Jamie Oliver used scalable ingredients to expand his food empire and that the right set of incentives can boost voter turnout. So is there really a science to scaling? Let's find out with the University of Chicago economist, chief economist of Lyft, and a man who was working on a study on improving learning outcomes of children when Uber invited him to be their chief economist. He's written a book on the whys and hows of scaling. The author of The Voltage Effect, John A. List, joins us live this morning. Good morning, John. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Welcome to Singapore Radio. We're just thrilled to speak with you. John, I have to ask about the catchy title. What is The Voltage Effect and why does the book's title point to things that can go wrong if you scale? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, thanks a lot. This is my first trip to Singapore. And I'm so glad to be here. (laughs) So The Voltage Effect is really a book about the science of scaling. So in my work in the White House and with various firms around the world, it's always about will the idea scale? And it's usually monikers like move fast and break things, fake it till you make it. That's art. So what I do in the book, The Voltage Effect, is I add science. Now, what I mean by the voltage effect is when we try something in the small and we try to expand it or scale it, every time that scaling leads to something that's very different than what happens in the small. And usually what happens is voltage drops. So what I mean by that is it looks great in the Petri dish and we have these high high excitement and high enthusiasm But then when we scale it, there's a huge voltage drop. That's typically what happens. So there's something about the original idea that loses its power when we try to go for a scale. What are the vital signs that an idea and the way it is being expanded will cause a voltage drop, John? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So in the book, I document five major reasons why when we try to take ideas from the small to the big, they end up not being so great. The first one is there's just no voltage to begin with. In science terms, that's called a false positive. It looked great, but the data were just lying. So that's vital sign number one. Make sure that your idea isn't a false positive. Vital sign number two is know your audience. So what I mean by that is many entrepreneurs overestimate the extent of market. They think, you know, this small group of people like my product, but when I scale it, everyone's going to love it. That typically doesn't happen. It's called size of market. And in many cases, we overestimate the size of market we can actually get or the piece of the pie. The third vital sign is, are there specific situational features that cause you to have success, but those can't be replicated at scale? Here, I want you to think about restaurants. A lot of restaurants try to scale. If the original success is due to the chef, it will never scale because unique humans don't scale. But if the initial success is due to the ingredients and you can buy those ingredients at scale, that will work. The ingredients will scale. So that's the third vital sign. The fourth one is 
all of our ideas have spillovers. The idea might affect other features of the business. So we should always take care to recognize these spillovers. And the last vital sign is understanding the supply side of your idea, or as you expand, does it become cheaper and cheaper to produce the goods, or does it become more and more expensive? When it becomes cheaper and cheaper, that's called economies of scale, and that's a good sign of a scalable idea. To your point on that first vital sign that an idea isn't going to scale. The data just doesn't support this idea growing large. And then we have companies like Theranos with an idea in hindsight that had seemingly so little science behind it. Why was Theranos able to grow so big? Yeah, no, there are different reasons for false positives. One is people are just faking the data. That's what she was doing. She was outright fraudulent. And she was so good at it that she duped people for years. And her idea was, I'm going to dupe people and bring in a bunch of money, this fake it till you make it mentality. And then I'm going to get so much money that I'm going to find an idea that will work. And then everyone's going to forgive me because I'm going to pivot to this great idea that works. Well, guess what happened? Uh, The roosters came home. And there was no idea. And she's going to probably go to prison because she was faking it and duping investors. That's one kind of false positive. There's, there are other kinds of false positives, too, that you just have data that is lying to you. The data are not representative of the broader market. That's, that's an honest type of false positive. And is this a representation of how many people were in the initial focus group? Is this based on the mats? behind testing at small scale? Yeah, that's part of it. That's exactly right. So the larger our sample size, the more confident we can be in the results. So it is partly a problem of, I just took a sample from the population and the sample was so small and it ended up being too optimistic and it wasn't representative of the overall population. That's right. So in the investment world, a lot of attention is being paid to these transport apps. You know, initially there were very low fares and now we're seeing a huge surge in fares. A lot of drivers leaving these apps uh, to look for jobs in a post-COVID world back in the office because they're being paid better. Um, You were chief economist at Uber. What does this book shed light on about its founder, Travis Kalanick's fall? That's a good point. So I was hired in 2015 by Travis, and I found Travis to be a great guy. But Travis built a company that was built on a foundation that was difficult to scale. So the culture that Travis built for Uber was a great culture from startup to, say, 500 million or a billion, but it was a very difficult culture to build from a billion to 120 billion. That's what we were more or less valued at when I had left four years ago. And that was then a difficult foundation because Travis is a great leader at the very beginning to be a visionary and get the troops, including me, to work hard and be imaginative in very important ways. But after that, you need a very diverse workforce. You need men and women and white and black and brown. And and you need all kinds of different types of workers to scale 
to the level where Uber wanted to scale. And that's where it became a little more difficult at Uber. You've touched on this area of diversity as being necessary to scale. For entrepreneurs listening in, what are some other key strategies that you can share on how to maximize your chances of being able to scale successfully? Yeah, absolutely. So the entire second half of the Voltage Effect book is what I call four little behavioral economic secrets to maintain high voltage. So the first half talks about vital signs. The second half really talks about strategies. And in the first chapter, I talk about what are the best incentives to use for scaling. And I importantly draw out incentives that are non-financial in nature. Those can be very important incentives, things like peer effects and social norms and social pressures. These are all very important incentives that are scalable. But I also talk about financial incentives in this chapter. And what I mean by that is ways to frame bonuses, for example. I've had a lot of luck giving bonuses up front. And then I tell my workers or my team that if you achieve our goal, you can keep your bonus. If we don't achieve, I'm going to claw back some of your bonus. And that ends up working very well because people have loss aversion. People don't like to lose things. And that type of incentive brings out that kind of nature. So other chapters in the back half of the book are about marginal thinking. We should use data to think on the margin, not using averages. And there are several tools that I talk about in that chapter. Then I go on to pivoting and quitting. So in America, quitting is a repugnant word. People say you should never quit. In my book, I argue that we don't quit enough. And the reason why we don't quit enough is because of, first, society tells us we shouldn't quit. And second, we neglect our opportunity cost of time. So what I mean by that is, as I'm the chief economist at Lyft, that means I can't be the chief economist at Walmart. So I need to recognize that if, if I pivot from Lyft, I can do a new job. But if I stay at Lyft, it has a serious opportunity cost. We tend to ignore that kind of thinking. And then the last chapter in the second half of the book is about building a culture, exactly as you brought up, and how we can build a culture that is scalable. Let's touch on a point that you raised earlier, and that is knowing your audience. And you write in this book, The Voltage Effect, for a comedian to kill it, she really has to know her audience. And jokes that bring down the house in one setting is could fail in another. And one idea that succeeds with one group may fall flat with another. You know, in this day and age, we hear so many entrepreneurs come on the show and talk about hyper-personalization, even in in the field of building or office design, hyper-personalization to the needs of users. Um, What is it that business that are scaling across a huge variety of audience segments, what do they do better than others? Yeah, 100%. It's a great question. So, In this chapter, I talk about what are ways that you can try to measure your audience? What are ways that you can try to measure what your audience wants? And many of us use surveys. We bring a group in, it's called a focus group, and we ask them, and I talk about the story with McDonald's. So McDonald's in the 90s wanted to introduce a new hamburger called the Arch Deluxe. So they brought in a group of people And they said, do you like the Arch Deluxe? And people said, yes. And then McDonald's said, would you pay $7 for the Arch Deluxe? The people say, yes. Now, the problem with this is, first of all, the people who come in 
to a focus group are probably hamburger lovers to begin with, and they probably love McDonald's. That's why they're part of the focus group. But the second reason is more subtle. And what that is, is what are the incentives that the focus group has to answer or give the truth? If they come in, they should say, I love the hamburger. You could say, well, why would they say I love the hamburger? Because they want McDonald's to introduce it because that's a free option for them. Think about your listeners are probably always buying options. You mm -hmm. can write, you can buy stocks, you can buy options, but it, there's a real cost to buy an option, an option of like, I can buy Google at $2,000 a share in September. You have to pay for that option. But when you're in a focus group and you say, I love Arch Deluxe hamburgers, you're getting that option in the future for free. So people understand that and they overemphasize their preferences. So when you do these types of activities, there are certain ways that you should depress those kinds of insights. And as entrepreneurs, we need to make sure we do that because we need to understand what exactly is the gettable market. And what you brought up before is true, that as we move more and more toward one size doesn't fit all, what you want to do is you want to find customer segments that will actually consume the type of product that you're providing, and then you want to diversify. In America, we have Taco Bell. Taco Bell has a zillion different kinds of tacos that you can make because they're trying to differentiate their product. And as firms really want to scale and be serious about it, you need to have a set of products that you can differentiate and then figure out which of your consumers want which product, or better yet, let your consumers choose which product they want. Really fascinating. We're speaking with John A. List, the author of our featured book today, The Voltage Effect. He's a noted economist, and he says this is his first visit to Singapore. We look forward to welcoming him in person. John, here in Singapore, we're very focused on educational outcomes. And I read in the book that you were building a pedagogical program that would produce good performance outcomes for children. I wonder what have you learned about scaling programs that are able to aim for peak learning? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So I think first of all is in the middle of this entire equation are the parents or the caregivers that around the world, the part of what economists call the education production function, what that means is what are the inputs that are missing for kids? It usually revolves around parents. And what I mean by that is in many households, especially households of lower SES or, or poorer households. These are parents who love their children, but they don't fully understand or appreciate that they're building their child's brain. The, the minute the child comes out, a lot of parents just don't believe that the brain is malleable. So what we've been finding is you have to start by changing or teaching parents that your child's brain is malleable and we need to invest in that child from the very beginning. But you also have to remember that you can't just invest for a few years and then stop. So this is not the kind of investment where you invest and then it grows with compound interest. This is an investment that will only yield returns if you continue to invest. And what I'm talking about here is zero through five, the parent tends to be the main builder of the brain and then we move the child to public education. It still needs to be great there as well. 
And the parent still needs to be part of the process, but they tend to take a back seat at that point and that reaches more formal schooling. But we still need to continue to have great education at those levels. Otherwise, all of the investment we make early on is just lost. So I want you to think about this as a resource that you need to continue to invest in and all the way up to the adolescent years. So I've researched from the delivery room to the adolescent years. And each of those time periods, there are unique ways to invest in children. And there are unique scalable ways as a society that we should be investing in. Oh, so fascinating. John, absolute pleasure to speak with you. And uh, we look forward to welcoming you here to Singapore really soon. In the meantime, we've got your book to chew on, The Voltage Effect. John Ayles joining me live right here on Read. I'm Michelle Martin. Thanks, John. Thanks so much, Michelle. Take good care of yourself and stay healthy. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.